Well, that was uh, one heck of a way to introduce uh, Supreme Court Justice Gordon Moore. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it is uh, you. It is nine o'clock a.m. in KYMN Radio. Uh, you are listening to uh, a, a yet to be named show featuring State Supreme Court Justice Mr. Gordon Moore. Good morning, Gordon. How morning, are you, Rich? Uh, great to be on with you. Great to be great to be on with you, sir. Um, this show is kind of, if I may say so, it's a, this is going to be a little bit of an unusual treat for our listening audience. Um, I, I, I know it is for me because I'm fascinated. I, I was a, uh, a, 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 a political science uh, student in, in college. I've always just loved the inner workings of the American government, governmental system. Uh, the judicial system obviously is, is, is a, uh, uh, it's a standalone or a, a co-equal part of the uh, the government, and uh, we're going to talk an awful lot about that over the uh, the, the coming months. It's going to be fun. Yeah, the third branch is is we're exactly. called the uh, yeah the the kind of the mysterious uh, third branch of government. We we do have a lot we could talk about, Rich, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's 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 going to be really something. So, um, you know. State Supreme Court justices don't get a lot of attention. There's not a lot of spotlight shining on on the individuals of, of the uh, state Supreme Court. It can be you don't go through the same kind of confirmation uh, process that that a national or the 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 federal Supreme Court goes through, um, and you know, sort of just by the nature of your uh, nature of your position, you don't go. You don't go to the press a lot to talk about an issue or something like that. Um, and, and that's actually something we should bring up right away. There are many things we can talk about on this show, but there are also some, th- some things on this show that, that we cannot discuss. Isn't that right? It is. I have to be very careful, uh, Rich. The Code of Judicial Conduct does prohibit judges from expressing an opinion on a case that is before them. Uh, it also... Uh, really restricts the ability of judges to talk about you know issues that could come before the court. Yeah. So I will have to probably defer uh, discussion on some topics mm-hmm. that I'm guessing you and your audience might be very interested in oh, sure. hearing about. Uh, so I'll let you know if that comes to pass. But I think there are a lot of things about the the system and the process that we can talk about. Yeah, I am going to do my best to not try to lead you down any of those paths. But if I do, you just tell me, hey, yeah, <laughs> knock it off. We can't go there we got to do something else i'll give you the look yeah i appreciate that (laughs) thank you but i i think we should take this first show we only have uh half an hour today and i mean this is normally going to be scheduled to be about a half an hour show but it takes me 22 minutes to ask one question so (laughs) they might go longer um at 9 30 today we of course on kwmn we have uh twins baseball the earliest game of the year yeah happy patriots day and same to you (laughs) sir thank you exactly (laughs) enjoy the boston marathon and the boston red sox playing at eight o'clock in the morning um but i i do want to take this time to just introduce you to our our audience like i say the uh supreme court justices don't get a lot of spotlight and i I think uh, people are going to want to know quite a bit about you and your background and such so let's start with uh where'd you come from where'd you grow up 
Well, thanks, Rich. Uh, I grew up in Rochester, actually. My dad was a physician at the Mayo Clinic, one of those uh, physicians that came to Rochester with the idea of doing a residency and then going back home. And sure. in that case, it was Southwest Michigan is where mm -hmm. he was from. And he ended up staying practicing 30 plus years in at the clinic. And so I, I grew up in Rochester, uh, Mayo Spartan, uh, from <laughs> high school days. Uh, nice. And we... Uh, I went to Carleton College uh, here in town. I've heard uh, of Carleton College. Yeah, I know it's 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 a place on on the other side of the river from the place you went. Right? Exactly. <laughs> Although I do have, ironically, I've got a son that's a junior there and a daughter that just recently graduated. So we have a blended family. I I, I am the black sheep of my family because my grandfather, my aunt, and my dad all went to Carleton. So I, I mean, I, I, I think we understand each other a little bit, Gordon. right? Yeah. So I'm a product of uh, Northfield and Carlton, mid 1980s nice. for the for the audience. And my wife uh, Jane is two years behind me at Carlton. Mm -hmm. We actually met at the Carltonian, ironically, um, doing uh, newspaper. Uh, that was where those were the days of, you know, when we had to actually have typesetters to get the, <laughs> right. the paper put together. Right, I mean, right. the students there now wouldn't would be able to believe what we had to deal with. Uh, I le we left Northfield. I went to law school at that point in, in Iowa City, uh, University of Iowa, and uh, Jane uh, and I were married the next year, 1989, after my graduation. Mm -hmm. uh, my legal career started with the Minnesota Attorney General's office. Before we go there, I want to ask you, what was it about the law that attracted you as, as, a, as a career? Well, I had somewhat of a similar academic background to you, Rich. Okay. I was a history major at Carleton, but I took a lot of political science courses. Mm -hmm. I was very interested in government, very interested in politics, how society worked, international relations. Uh, mm -hmm. Those were, That was the area of my interest at Carleton. And frankly, uh, in the mid-'80s, uh, you know, law school became, you know, a place for those types of people yeah, to go. I mean, did. unless you wanted to be an academic and teach, which I thought about seriously. But for me, I, I always thought there was an opportunity to have a have an impact uh, being a lawyer. Uh, I didn't know exactly what that impact would be, mm -hmm. but I decided to pursue that. Um, and so I went to law school with really not a specific plan in mind about, you know, I'm going to be a you know immigration lawyer or a sure. family lawyer. Sure. Um, I was more interested in conceptual issues related to the law. I mean, constitutional law, criminal law. Mm -hmm. And over the course of my time in Iowa City, I developed um, interest in in the court system and how the court system worked, both mm -hmm. state and federal. And most of my work has been in the public sector as a result of that. I started with the Minnesota Attorney General, right. uh, Hubert Humphrey III was the AG at that time, worked with just some splendid attorneys back in those days. It was a really good first job. Uh, ironically, I didn't do a judicial clerkship. I kind of wish that I had. And yeah. I, I push clerkships to every young law student I can think of, or any, law students of all ages, because it's a great start. What 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 does what a ju judicial clerkship entail? Well, it, it entails working with a judge, either at the trial court level or the appellate level, uh, really closely to get decisions issued and get work done on the court. And it gives young lawyers a chance to see behind the scenes, you know, kind of what really happens in a courtroom. Mm -hmm. Now, the district court experience is vastly different from what I'm doing now at the Supreme Court, imagine. obviously. Yeah. I mean, it's a whole different story. It's the difference between the, you know, the urgent care uh 
facility of the court system versus the you know the <laughs> I guess maybe the more complex surgical suites right, that right, we deal with right. at the Supreme Court. But yeah, judicial clerkships give uh, you know young lawyers a chance to see what they like and don't like about the law, mm-hmm. um, areas they'd like to see changed. I mean, I've had. Uh, clerks that are defense attorneys. I've got uh, former clerks that are prosecutors, um, some doing real estate work. And a lot of times it's about helping people to sort of see, yeah, I'm not sure I want to do that. Or I, you know, I see that kind of work and, you know, maybe you don't want to be a trial lawyer. Maybe you want to be a transactional attorney uh, doing office work. So um, I, I started at the attorney general's office doing civil litigation in the transportation and employment law areas. And how did you get hooked up with Skip Humphrey's office? Is, is it just you just applied? And I they just applied. Him? I okay. just applied. They uh, they were uh, you know interviewing at Iowa at the AG's office interviews outside of Minnesota, mm-hmm. and I was really interested. I'd heard good things about the office. I didn't have any political connections at all. I was just a aspiring attorney, and so my first um, time interviewing at the attorney general's office, I think the second person I interviewed with was Norm Coleman. Oh, wow. Who obviously ended up becoming a pretty important person <laughs> yeah, in Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. Um, St. Paul uh, mayor and then uh, later uh, state senator or U.S. senator. Yeah. And uh, uh, Norm was the solicitor general at that point in time. Okay. The solicitor general being the person that is primarily responsible for the AG's appearances before the Supreme Court and formulating appellate uh, law for the AG. And so, you know, I interviewed with, uh, well, Jack Thunheim, who's now a, uh, the chief judge of the federal district court of Minneapolis, wow, was okay. the chief deputy at that time. And, you know, I could go down the list yeah. of people from that office that I worked with there that are currently judges or have been judges or doing other amazing things as, you know, foundation chairs. It was just an office full of some really outstanding people. And they th- sort of threw you into the breach. I mean, mm-hmm. you do, or you did, I guess, at that point in time in the late 80s, a three-month stint doing what we call implied consent cases. Implied consent cases are the civil side of the DWI penalty where the Commissioner of Public Safety um, revokes a driver's license mm-hmm. if a person is you know, stopped with a certain blood alcohol content. And those, those cases are handled by the Attorney General's Office across the state. So that was our trial training program. They gave you a binder, and they gave you a calendar, and they told you, go to Halleck, go to Worthington, go to Winona, and figure out what what this is all about. Run across the state. And so you, and that was, you know, pre-cell phone, pre-internet, and so you showed up, and you had to figure things out, talking to lawyers, talking to police, and it was a really good, um, you know, kind of baptism by fire on, frankly, a little lower stakes cases. We weren't talking about million-dollar lawsuits. So we were mm-hmm. talking about whether or not someone should get their driver's license back earlier right. than they want, right. than the state thinks they should. So that was my experience. I got involved in uh, eminent domain work for the Department of Transportation. Remember old Highway 12 being converted to 394? I, I was in, I was involved in some of the land acquisition for okay. that, some really high-dollar land, land tracks there along 394. And um, then went to the employment law division, which was kind of wild and woolly, frankly. Uh, employment litigation is, is sometimes kind of crazy, and it was. Uh, and I would I, imagine I'd, that can get super contentious, too. Extraordinarily con- contentious. And I'd had kind of my fill of that and was considering next steps and ended up through a series of, of what turned out to be fortunate events, ending up in Worthington, Minnesota. A classmate of mine had a job at a small firm in Worthington that was the city attorney for the um, for, for Worthington, and I knew I was interested in doing some criminal work. Mm-hmm. And so I 
wife and I, Jane was from um, North Mankato, so we drove down to Worthington, and I, I knew a few lawyers in that area, but I didn't know people real well. And I really liked the firm, Von Holt and Malters and Shepard, uh, combination of litigation and, and municipal law. And they offered me a job. And I thought, you know what, this is not maybe the most conventional uh, way to, to approach things. I mean, at that point in time, that was the L.A. law days of the late right. 80s. You right. know, you didn't see a lot of people going to small towns to practice law. Right. But for me, it was a, a place to get some community, a place to get, um, you know, a foot in the door in the legal area and to learn. And so I did. I, I did municipal law with that firm and, and civil litigation for about eight years before becoming county attorney. There's nothing wrong with being a country lawyer. I Jeff uh, and I, just before the uh, the morning show ended, uh, were talking about today is Clarence Darrow's birthday. Clarence yes. Darrow was maybe the greatest of them all, but, but the, a, a country lawyer, a small town lawyer who did some amazing work. I yeah. loved it. When I became a trial court judge in Worthington in 2012, I really enjoyed seeing some attorneys that maybe underestimated the country lawyers mm-hmm. come to Worthington uh, for a trial or something. Sure. And, you know, sometimes they learn the hard way that the country lawyers are actually <laughs> excellent attorneys. And We're, so I really, I, I agree with you, Rich. Country lawyers have a, you know, you, you have to have a little bit of a different approach to things, mm-hmm. but it doesn't make them any less worthy oh, at all. We're not bumpkins down here, I promise you. <laughs> uh, not at all. And not at all. And so, you know, I, my work as county attorney brought me directly into the courtroom on more serious cases. I was elected county attorney three times in Nobles County before okay. I had the good fortune of uh, applying for a judgeship. We, 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 we skipped a little bit. You, so you went from the, the law firm to what, what was it that made you want to run for county attorney? Well, a series of, you know, kind of serendipitous events. The current county attorney uh, moved to Clay County uh, to seek a position in Moorhead. And so there was a vacancy in the county attorney's office, and the county board decided to make the job full-time. Mm-hmm. Many outstate counties uh, in those days had what are called part-time county attorneys, where lawyers in a law firm would also have a, you know, part of their job was to represent the county. Sure. And the county board, Worthington, Nobles County, was getting big enough where they needed a full-time county attorney. And so in the uh, in January of 2002, they said for that election, that fall, we are going to have a full-time county attorney. And nobody from the firm that was handling the county attorney's work wanted the job, frankly. Oh, okay. And so uh, they asked me to consider running for it, and nice. I did. And that was another baptism by fire because the municipal work uh, that city attorneys do is prosecuting misdemeanors, mm-hmm. certain gross misdemeanors. I mean, less serious cases, mm-hmm. misdemeanors by statute, maximum sentences in 90 days in jail, now a $1,000 right. fine, gross misdemeanors a year in jail, a $3,000 fine, felonies, obviously, is a whole different story, right. plus the county attorney's handle the juvenile delinquency cases, the child protection cases, child support, a whole nother area of work right. that I hadn't really had a lot Family of experience law, on. Right. Yeah, so I, I, I ran unopposed in, in 2002 and was reelected twice. And uh, then in uh, 2011, the long-term, long-time judges in, in Rock and Nobles County decided to retire. And I uh, 
I applied for uh, one of the positions, and uh, Governor Dayton appointed me to the district court in uh, early 2012, which was okay. a huge honor. I mean, yeah. it was just to be a finalist for that position alone was was heady. To get the position was, you know, life changing. And so I had to literally walk across the hall at the Justice Center in Worthington <laughs> from the county attorney's office to the district court, which was interesting. And that's where I uh, worked until uh, the openings for the appellate court came up in okay. 2020 that I applied for and ended up uh, receiving. Okay. So, I, I, I mean, there's a, obviously an enormous difference between being a lawyer and a judge. I mean, pretty much the only thing you guys have in common is the fact that you both have to know the law cold. But uh, what was the, the transition like for you? Well, it's challenging, Rich. As a, as a lawyer, you're an advocate for a client. I yeah. mean, you're representing a client. As a public lawyer, like a county attorney or a city attorney, you represent the, you know, the people of that jurisdiction, the state, in, in criminal cases. Uh, for private clients, obviously, your interest is for that client. Uh, as a judge, you are not representing a client, obviously. You are seeking to impartially and fairly apply the law to that case. And so you take off the advocate hat. No matter what position you are advocating, you are now looking at cases differently. And so, for instance, I had spent you know a good portion of the previous decade doing county attorney work, working with police, working with uh, you know um, colleagues in my office on criminal prosecution. Mm -hmm. Well, suddenly I was in the position where I had to look at those cases from a totally different lens. Yeah. And you know, I I joke with some judges that you know they ask, is it is it better to be appointed judge in the county where nobody knows you or the county where everybody knows you? Right. And you know that's a that's a close call, frankly, because yeah. in counties where you know a lot of people, there are a lot of conflict issues. There are a lot of you know. There's just a lot of baggage sounds negative but you know you know people you get to know people and so you have to decide what cases you can be involved with and can't be and sometimes it's tough to have to tell your former colleagues that um this case you know wasn't wasn't charged right uh, there's no probable cause there's you know the search warrant needs to be su suppressed uh, that didn't happen a lot, but it happened occasionally. And then I had to make sure that the defense had the confidence that I was going to be fair sure. <clears throat> to their clients, sure. even though I'd primarily been a prosecutor. I'd done a little defense work, but mostly a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a delicate balance in a small town where you're not anonymous and you're working with people who you've either been you know colleagues with or supervised before. Uh, and I, you know, I, I managed to, you know, swerve around the, the mines pretty well in that job, I guess <laughs> they, they, you know, you're, you're by your very nature in contested cases, you know, somebody's likely to be disaffected or unhappy with the decision. One would imagine. And so we try to push mediation and resolution of cases where possible. I know mm -hmm. sometimes that, that gets a bad rap. People talk about plea agreements and criminal cases, like it's somehow this sort of totally negative thing. Well, the reality is is that there aren't resources for every case to be tried, and frankly, not every case should be tried. Right. There are cases that are clear cut, and it's just a question of of what the what the you know appropriate disposition should be. Does that happen a fair amount? I mean, does does a judge can a judge look at a case and see the enough gray area in there to to call the two uh, lawyers into their office and say, "Plead this out." Get, 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 let's not try this. You know, that's a that's a 
great question and it's a challenging question. In civil cases, the court has a lot more ability to do that. To, okay. to call the lawyers and and say, look, you know, um, this just needs to be this needs to be settled. This is not a good case. I mean, judges can put a fair amount of um, personal. I mean, they, they can't involve themselves in the case, but in civil cases, they have the ability to do more, what I would say, mediating might be. Mm-hmm. Criminal cases, you have the defendant and you have constitutional rights. Yes. And so it would be inappropriate for a judge to tell a defendant what they should or shouldn't do. Okay. But I think ju- lawyers know what the, the you know what the outcome is likely to be in most cases. Yeah. I mean, most criminal defense attorneys can see a set of police reports. They, they know the officers involved, you know, assuming there isn't some fact that hasn't been disclosed. I mean, remember prosecutors have to disclose everything Mm -hmm. to the defense, videos, reports, test results. So there should be no guesswork as to what, what evidence is going to come in at trial. And so, you know, the, good defense attorneys can sit down and have, you know, that discussion with, with their clients about, look, if this all comes in, here's the likely outcome. And based on my experience in court, here's likely what you're looking at. Oftentimes, most people charged with, uh, with Kate, with cases want to get the matter resolved. If, if frankly, they're guilty. I mean, Mm -hmm. if, if they made a mistake, they'd rather not prolong it. However, um, just because you're charged, you're presumed innocent. Yes. And you know what? Uh, every now and then, uh, new facts come to light. Something comes up. And frankly, some cases are just hard to prove. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> mm-hmm. They're just hard to prove. And the prosecutors know that. The prosecutors know what kind of cases can be challenging to win in court. Um, basically, you know, we're talking about human beings here, Rich. The yeah. human condition yeah. on display in court. Yeah. It's a little bit of theater at times. And, sure and sometimes how people come across in court can change. I mean, you know, the, they, they call cross-examination the greatest crucible to determine the truth. And it's interesting how people react to being pushed about their testimony. Yeah. And it can be, you know, you've got the Clarence Darrow's of the world, the, the, you know, the classic trial lawyers, you know, then, you know, of the Perry Mason kind of TV right. stuff. But, you know, every now and then you'll have a really uh, important moment in court where you realize that something important just happened with regard to a witness. A, right. st- a story changed a little bit. A fact got brought out that hadn't been brought out. Or maybe some investigation revealed something that added to the picture. And, you know, remember the, the state's burden in a criminal case is proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a high bar. Yes, it is. That's, you know... I don't know. I don't if you can quantify it. That's north of ninety five percent certainty. I think. Yeah. Uh, civil cases, it's a lesser standard. Preponderance of the evidence is more likely than not. That's okay. over yeah. over fifty percent. Right. Uh, there's also. Uh, there's also a clear and convincing evidence standard, which is kind of between the two of them that okay. applies to different type of cases. But uh, it's a, you know, tr- trials are fascinating. They, yeah. are, they are just fascinating. And the jury trials don't happen every day in court. Mm-hmm. Uh, they probably shouldn't happen every day because they it's a it's a huge undertaking to call people away from their lives and their, their work to come in. But it is a fascinating thing to be part of. And I yeah. urge all listeners, if they get that jury summons, to, you know, take advantage of the opportunity because uh, it'll be something they'll remember. We are going later, later, one of these shows down the line, we are going to talk about jury duty and the, uh, 
the, the, the inconvenience of it and the responsibilities attached to it and, and, and all of those things. I think that that's fascinating. You know, you're talking about uh, cross-examination. I can tell you that I've, I've never been to court. I've never watched a trial. You know, knock on wood, I've never been charged with anything. Uh, but I've seen enough movies and TV shows to know that if you were to, if I were to be cross-examined on anything, I would just crumble like a coffee cake. I mean, just, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's intense. I mean, yeah. you can you can just sense the barometric pressure in the courtroom changing right. when there's a good cross-examination going on. It's just there's a good lawyers can create an impression uh, by how. You know, they ask questions and how witnesses answer questions. You know, these are the few and far between cases, but I've seen it happen in court where a, a witness's testimony has fundamentally changed from previous reports. Uh, you know, there's new things that have come out. Yeah. And, you know, one of the hardest things as an attorney in those cases is to see one of your witnesses up there that's really getting beat up on cross-examination right. and you're trying to not look like it's affecting you at all because <laughs> you don't want that jury to know that, boy, my case is, you know, taking on some water here a you, little bit. You, you got to keep your game face You on. do, you yeah. do. There's a theater aspect to it that yeah. is fascinating, but I, I do miss that aspect of the district court because obviously in the appellate court and the state Supreme Court, we're listening to lawyers argue about what happened in district court for right. the most part, sometimes right. in front of agencies and other other venues, but it's it's more focused on the law than it is on the facts usually. Sure, we have exactly three minutes left in this uh, initial conversation, um, and I, I, I want to remind our audience that. Uh, uh, moving forward, we're going to have much more time to, to get into some really interesting conversations uh, down the line. But just with the, the, the time we have left, um, the next time we talk, we are going to talk about the Supreme Court, how you became a, a justice, what the process is, what it's like to be a Supreme, what your day is, what, you know, all the, all the things that involve that. But it's, it, it is unusual for a Supreme Court justice to want to do a radio show. What what is it that that uh, you thought? You know what? I might want to uh, sit down and talk to people for a while once well, a month. You know, Rich in, in Worthington, I was on the radio, uh, the radio station there frequently. Not not as much as a judge as I was as county attorney, but I felt there was an obligation for the bar and the bench to, when appropriate communicate with the public about mm -hmm. what it is we do because it's it's kind of a mystery frankly yeah and you know we are we are elected officials just like your state representatives and state senators and you know we ask the voters to determine um, whether we should be retained or whether we should be elected and i think the voters are entitled to hear occasionally now the supreme court issues its opinions as a court I mean, mm -hmm. it's not, this isn't the Gordon Moore opinion, unless right. it's a dissent or a separate writing. Right. That, that, but as far as the majority opinion, it is, you know, written by one justice, but it's for the court mm -hmm. as opposed to the district court where it's one judge, one opinion. And so, you know, we speak through our opinions. Uh, we speak about what the law is through our opinions. But um, we have justices that have uh, have done uh, public interest-related things. Justice G. Barry Anderson has done a public television show in uh, greater Minnesota for Pioneer Public TV with the legislators for years called Meet the Legislators. And he's not expressing opinions about the issues that they're debating, but it's more of a public interest uh, to effort. Sure. And so that's what I view this as, Rich. This is public interest, communication. Um, and hopefully to stimulate some greater understanding about the legal process and the law and maybe to 
dispel, you know, rumors, uh, things that aren't correct. I think mm-hmm. getting getting correct information out is important. Uh, we, you know, we have a lot of ground we could cover in different topics. Yes, I'm, really, I'm looking forward to it. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on. And for me, this is a kind of a continuation of the things that I've done in the past. Obviously, the stage is a little bigger here. Yeah. We've we got a, a statewide position here, but it doesn't change me and my my ability to want to communicate with people about about the legal system. Well, we are incredibly fortunate uh, in, here at KYMN Radio that you want to be a part of this. Our listeners in the Northfield and surrounding area are really, uh, I think, really going to enjoy this. And we are. This is going to be offered also as a a, a standalone podca- podcast. So uh, you know, we'll, we're going to reach an international audience at some point, Gordon. <laughs> yeah, that's let's let's make sure we get a show title for yeah. first. Right? <laughs> then we can maybe get, go to the uh, Apple uh, the App Store, right? Let's let's crawl before we uh, take off on a sprint, right? All right, Gordon Moore, thank you so much, and we will uh, be talking with you again next month. Thanks, Rich. I look forward to it. All right, all right. You are listening to 95.1 KYMN Radio, Northfield, Minnesota. Coming up very soon, uh, we will have... uh uh, Twins baseball uh, it, on, pay, from from Boston on Patriots Day. Uh, pre-game for that starts at 9.30. Until then, this is Josh Ritter.